Here we go. Okay. So we had lab meeting today. And it's like in the middle of the day because that's the most convenient time to have a meeting is 1230 to 2, obviously. Um, Except it's not. No, it's horrible. <laughs> my ex- I'm like, I can't do any experiments if I have a meeting in the middle of the day. Yeah, no. And then we have our departmental seminar from 2 to 3. So like there are no experiments done on Thursday. It's just not a thing. Um, But anyway, I was, you know noodling around as you do trying to find some way that my data is interesting from an experiment i finished we've all been there um Mm -hmm. and i saw a like a little alert popped up that you know the queen was in ill health and so naturally i got on twitter because that's where i get all of my news and someone was like everyone in the bbc has switched to black suits and black ties and so then i'm live streaming the bbc (laughs) instead of doing my work (laughs) Um, and like, you know, people were arriving, like all of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> and, um, two of my lab mates walk by and they're like, oh, are you coming to lab meeting? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. Um, and then poor David goes, are you watching TV? And I was like, the queen is dying. I'm live streaming the BBC. <laughs> and he was like, I mean, that feels more important than what I've been doing today, so sure. <laughs> and then the staff scientist, Rachel, was like, you're not getting any judgment from me on that. Um, and she's, like, from Australia, so she was like, wait, so she's, like, really dying? And I was like, yeah. So we, like, discussed it walking in, and our PI is out of town this week, so, like, lab meeting was kind of pointless. Um, what? Couldn't you have just not had it? Oh, you would think. That's what normal people do. But no, she feels it's still important that we meet even when she's not there um, for, like, camaraderie or something. I don't know. But, like, how would she know? <laughs> she would she know because there. my lab is full of narcs. We're all goody two-shoes no. and we don't want to break well, the then, rules. Then pick up a pizza and just eat pizza and hang out and don't talk about your science. Yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> we like- um, Oh, okay. We all brought our lunch and we talked about the fact the queen was dying. And five minutes in, so, like, as I was leaving, because they were just waiting for Harry to, like, arrive. Everybody else had, like, gotten there. Um, This, like, black truck pulled up and the windows were tinted so they couldn't see who was inside it. But obviously Harry was inside it. Um, And so then, like, five minutes after lab meeting, they officially announced that she had died. And then we had to talk about, like, succession because, like, the queen had, like, openly said that she wanted William to be king, not Charles, because Charles is not a good guy that is very obvious um but then the bbc announced that charles was king and it was like a whole thing and so we were talking about that and then we had to explain to david and ben why charles wouldn't be a good king because apparently they live under a rock i also kind of live under a rock he's just if you yeah i only got through like season four of the crown and then i stopped so I don't really know the whole story. Well, he just like so he married Diana, and right. he was older than her. Um, because she was like nineteen when they got married. It was not great, and he was already like having an affair with Camilla, and he was very that un- part I knew. Yes. Yeah, he was very unkind to Diana. Um, he he essentially encouraged her to commit suicide when they were married 
Um, yeah, he was what? he was a real piece of work. Um, and then there's the whole conspiracy theory that like he had Diana killed in Paris, which is like probably not true. Eighty percent probability on that. Um, that is not true, but you know, never know, I guess. But um, then like in recent years, like he's just he's a little racist. <laughs> Um, there, there are stories with multiple witnesses where he said some very, um, not okay things to Harry's wife, Megan, who is, um, is the American TV film actress, the American TV film actress, um, but also is half African American. Um, and they basically came out and said that he being a terrible person is why they kind of like seceded from the family. Um, he's not a good guy. And he should not be king. Well, but does the queen or the royal family's preferences actually have anything to do with succession? Apparently like, not. Well, I mean, to be fair, that's, Okay, I'm not an expert on English history. That would be my sister Grace's department. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's just like how succession works. Is no, it's I just know. who who was born for like it's not like the, you know, parliament or whoever is like actively going against the queen's wishes or whatever. It's just that like No, I know that's how it works. What, but what we would desire is irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> well, while I agree, I had kind of hoped in the deep bottom of my heart that she was going to outlive Charles, um, which I know is silly because she was 96 and he's like, but he's in his 70s and he does not look good. So it could have happened. Um, I mean, you never know. I mean, if he does, does he have sons? Yes, he has two sons, William and Harry. They're. Oh, yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <I'd>... <laughs> that shows you how much I pay attention or okay. understand what's going on in England. <laughs> we are like 30 seconds away from going to get a whiteboard and just drawing the whole thing out. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I am okay living in my blissful ignorance. I don't really know anything that's going on with the world. Somehow I convinced myself I don't know what I thought. I never drew the family tree out no to worries. figure it out myself. But it sounds like eventually William would will be king. He will be king, and I think he's going to be a really good king. Because he took over most of the queen's duties, like, last year. Um, and people seem to really like him. And also his kids are just, like, adorable, and that gets him pretty far in my book. I'm gonna be honest. They are really cute. A really cute baby gets you very far in my book. But, yeah, no. His children are adorable. He seems like a good guy. I think he should be king. But apparently his dad has to go first or whatever. Some nonsense. So. Yeah, some nonsense... But by some nonsense, you mean like <laughs> all of British a thousand years of precedence? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do mean that. of of literally every monarchy ever in yeah. the history of time. Whatever. Well, probably not the history of time. There's someone out there who would be able to say, actually, 
in ancient Mesopotamia, they had a blah, 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 blah. Do, blah, do blah, you mean history. my husband, Thomas Smith? <laughs> Should we call him in here to tell us <laughs> if, if all monarchies have worked with the firstborn as the successor? <laughs> no. <laughs> I will consult him later because he's going to want to think about that, I'm sure. And we will tweet out if we are wrong. Uh, okay. I did read a fairy tale book called Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness by Andrew Peterson. Okay. Um, and, in, and in this imaginary kingdom, it's the second child that is the king. Interesting. Which seems... It is interesting. It is also kind of weird to me, because, like, what if you only have one kid? Yeah. Does the... Like... Or... You, I don't know. There, I'm like I'm. I foresee a lot of legal issues with it being structured in another way. But that's it. I digress. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's fine. <sighs> I understand that's the law. I just think it's stupid. <laughs> but how are you doing? <laughs> I am good and a lot. Okay. Right now. Um, uh, there's like. I'm doing a lot of stuff right now, and I don't know exactly how this happened. Um, but I just have. So I'm getting a PhD, and then I have you a bunch are? of. I am. What? This is the first time <laughs> hearing of this. This is shocking news. <laughs> um,. But I'm, like, getting a PhD, and I've got a couple of different side hustles kind of going right now. Because um, I've been doing mentorship, some mentorship with Polygents, so I've been mentoring a high school student. Um, that's about to end uh, in the next week or two, which is good. But, like, I also just started doing a little bit of freelance writing for Femme Catholic. Um, so I need to start writing my next article for them. So I'm doing that. I'm also writing for the Live Today Well Ministry. Um, and just had my first little thing published with them. Um, because they're doing like a monthly magazine with like, you know, a couple short stories from like a bunch of different, um, Catholic writers. Uh, so like I'm, but I'm like doing stuff with them. And I like sing in my choir at church every week. And I'm on the DEI committee for my department. And I've just been kind of feeling like a little a little bit overwhelmed. And, you know, there's also some good new things happening, you know, with Randy and things moving forward in our relationship. But there's nothing formal to discuss at this point. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I assure you, <laughs> listeners, as soon as there is something formal, I will be on it. <laughs> yes, you will You will be informed. I'm sure all 40 of you are on the edge of your seats. And that's not a made-up number, actually, because we've had a pretty solid number of uh, episode plays. Well, so I I'm appreciate those 40 people because Thomas and I were in the car driving home on Monday and he made me listen to it. Um, and I'm really glad you can put up with the sound of my voice. Because apparently I can't. 
(laughs) (laughs) I don't mind it so much. Um, But, yes. So, just things feel overwhelming. And I'm like, I am doing a lot right now. How did that happen? happen? I don't know. You say yes to good things, and then there are many, many good things. And then there are many, many good things. So I'm trying to, I'm starting to think about now, like, how do I moderate my time? How do I moderate, like, what I give to different things? What are some ways I can, like, lighten the load a little bit for myself? So... Like, setting boundaries for, like, how often I write certain things for certain people and um, trying to restructure some of that are, like, things on the forefront of my mind because I'm also, you know, soon going to be adding another thing to my plate. Uh, Again, TBD on what (laughs) what that is. (laughs) So I'm trying to prepare. Mary Grace is just like wagging her head and wiggling her eyebrows at me. Because <laughs> <laughs> he loves you. He wants to kiss you. He wants to hug you. Have you been watching Miss Congeniality lately? Yes, it's one of my faves. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, I watched it the other week because I saw it on Netflix. Um, and Miss Congeniality came up on a trivia night. Ooh. Because it was, like, what 2004 or six like, movie sequel has the subtitle Armed and Fabulous. And I was like, Miss Congeniality 2! It was one of, like, three answers that I, like, for sure. <laughs> I was like, I know 100% for sure that it's Miss Congeniality 2, Armed and Fabulous. And because so- she is armed and fabulous. Okay, this is very yeah. important. This movie also, was formative in my young life. I also, I started watching another Sandra Bullock movie last night called The Net, where she's basically being harassed by a bunch of cyber terrorists who want to, like, I don't know, destroy the government or something. I haven't finished it. I got kind of bored. Interesting. Um, But I'm like, why is Sandra Bullock always playing the, like, workaholic, hyper-single like men are trying to throw themselves at her but she's like too oblivious to figure it out character um i will have you know she does not always play that character sometimes she plays the very dedicated mom who rescues the football prodigy oh yes the white savior movie starring <laughs> <laughs> sorry <Yikes>. i'm sorry <laughs> it's a good it's actually i actually really like the movie I think it's, you know, it's really interesting and I I think they they talk about, they like discuss a lot of interesting things in the movie. I'm just kind of like, yeah, it is a little bit like wealthy white woman saves all the poor. Only one kids. of the poor black kids. One well, of the poor the talented black kids. Black kid. Yeah. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I miss it. The message is not my favorite. No. But but she did concede she would wear gaudy Tennessee orange, so she's got that going for her in that movie. 
That's true. And I'm not saying that, you know, in the real story, she that the family didn't do a good thing. I think that's a good, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad story. I'm just kind of like, uh, okay. Anyway, yeah. I'm going to get play off. In, it it plays very nicely into some associated biases that are common in our culture right now. Yes. But still, good so, movie. Sandra so Bullock's a national treasure. Yes. Sandra Bullock also plays a fabulous single lady who is in love with a ghost with whom she corresponds via letters through a magic mailbox. I dig it. I'm talking about the lake house in case you weren't. Okay. (laughs) No, Sandra Bullock is a national treasure and I will not hear anyone say anything otherwise. Are all of her movies good? No. But you can't no. be right all the time. No. While You Were Sleeping is also a weird one. A little bit. A little bit. It's cringy. Yeah. Anyway. We should introduce Where ourselves. Where were we? <laughs> <laughs> we were telling them who we are and what this podcast is. That's right. Is it my turn? Do I get another chance? Of Am course I going to get, get to redeem chance. myself? All right. If Jesus is going to give you another chance every time you go to confession, well, I, can I have give been you to confession chance. since the last time I introduced the podcast. So there we go. I'm ready. All right. Welcome to the Feminine Genus Podcast. I'm Mary Grace Smith, and I'm Catherine Brewer. We're two Catholic women in science discussing faith, science, and how they meet in real life. What are we talking about today? <laughs> So kind of, this is tangentially related to like how I am right now, which is feeling overwhelmed by a bunch of things. Um, I've been thinking a lot about like, what is a PhD even for? Um, Because, so we talked about this a little bit last week, that I have been through a bit of a journey in my own PhD, that there was a while there when I... You know, years two and three of my PhD, I was just, like, really unsure what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't know why I was even doing a PhD. I was, like, I was just feeling really, you know, kind of lost. And it took kind of, A, moving on from a project that wasn't really going anywhere um, to a project that is moving forward really well. But also just reflecting more on seeing the PhD really as just like training and a tool for my career. Um, that's kind of helped me out a bit. Um, so I've been kind of thinking about this in sort of two ways and we can tackle them in whatever order you want. The first one I've been thinking about is like, what does it actually mean to have a PhD? Like, what do we have... What does our training actually, like, give us authority to speak to? Um, Because, like, I even noticed, like, during the pandemic, I had a few friends, like, text me or whatever to uh, ask me, you know, to ask me, like, should I get the COVID vaccine? You know, because they had concerns or whatever. And so, like, but it was was strange to be in a position to be where, where... Oh, 
the way that I answer this question is going to actually impact a decision that somebody makes, and that decision is not unimportant. Yeah, um, no, for sure. So I've been thinking about, like, what does a PhD mean in terms of, like, yeah, what kind of speaking authority or teaching we have, teaching authority we, like, have? Um, what is What does it mean, like, to employers and you know, what does it really mean about us and our training? Um, and then also, what does a PhD mean in terms of, like, what are the gaps in that training? Because um, yeah, part of the absolutely. reason, yeah, because part of the reason why I'm, like, doing some of these side hustles is because I figured out that I don't want to be a researcher forever. Um, so I would really like to move into science communications, science writing, Something where I get to, like, talk to people about scientific content and, like, write about it and, you know, do do something that's a bit more science tangential. But unfortunately, the way a PhD is structured, like, I don't necessarily get all the training I need to go into that kind of field through just the PhD program. So I have to look for opportunities outside of that to grow my skill set on my own. Uh, so that was a lot of, that was a lot of things that I just said in my little monologue here, but, um, so pick your poison out of any of the things I just said. Yeah, I think probably the logical place to start is what, like, is a PhD and what are they attempting to prepare us to do, um, and why that's important. And then we can sort of move into the caveats of that and why you sometimes have to seek out other training opportunities outside of your PhD program to be able to be fully prepared for what you want to do post post PhD and the PH done phase of your life. The PH done, hopefully. <laughs> so I feel like really at the outset, like a PhD Yes, it is about increasing your specific knowledge of, like, a narrow field of study. Um, so, like, I was interested in biochemistry and chemistry in college, and so I'm in a lab that does biochemistry research so I can learn um, a more specific set of knowledge around a, a subject matter. But um, one thing that, you know, we it was actually stressed to us when we started our PhD was that what you study in your PhD doesn't actually matter that much for your broader career outside of your PhD because what you're learning even more than, you know, knowledge of a particular subject area is you're learning uh, critical thinking. You're learning, like, how do I... What are you looking at? Can you hear the helicopter? No. Can you hear anything? We, I just um, see Mary Grace like looking. I'm sorry, scarily it was very up in the loud as it just came. It just buzzed <laughs> the house. Um, but anyway, I completely digress. Yeah, I think, I think something that was stressed to me when I began my training was that you are the foremost expert in your research question when you graduate. So when I graduate, I will be the foremost expert in the world on my very particular uh, question about, you know, looking for druggable protein targets in graft versus host disease. But 
that's not so that I can then go and improve the world with this very specific knowledge subset that I have gained expertise in. It's because the journey of becoming that expert then teaches you how to ask other questions and grow expertise in other fields. Yes. So like really what we're learning, what we're being trained to do is to think critically, to learn how to understand, you know, the literature, how to read literature, how to distinguish good science from bad science, how to do good study design and tell if a study has been performed appropriately or not. Um, And to hopefully learn the basics of like, how do you present science? Like, how do you talk about what you do with like people who do know what you do and people who are outside your field, but are still academics. Um, And that's unfortunately where it kind of stops is most of your experiences in academic uh, communication. But that's also for a little bit later. So I won't jump the gun on that too much. Right. And I do think there is like a really important technical component. You know, like there are technical skills that you need to come out of your PhD knowing as well. So not all of it is like thought based specifically. Um, there are, you know, things that you need to know how to do. Like, if you come out of your PhD not knowing how to run a Western block, Catherine, that's probably not great. What a great example, because I have literally probably done 200 Western blots in the past year. Yeah, it's constant. Um, I will know how to do a Western blot when this is over, I promise. But also, like, the PhD fundamentally is about asking good questions and knowing how to find out the answers to questions that you ask. And so there is a really important technical component, but I think the most important thing is sort of the growth of your your thought capacity. Yeah, which was honestly, like, the whole reason why I did a PhD mm-hmm. was because I liked thinking about science and I wanted to like my goal I guess for lack of a better phrase even though it was poorly formed at the time and has kind of since clarified a bit was like I want to get paid to use my mind I don't want to get paid to use my hands yeah no I think that's fair yeah I want to get paid to like think about stuff and think about solutions to problems which is kind of what your PhD is training you to do we're learning how to learn Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> so I can take a new problem, and it might only take me, you know, a couple of weeks or a month to, like, really grow a knowledge of that subject. Yeah. Uh, because I have, like, a base knowledge of, you know, other fields that will help me understand something new and, like, synthesize new information and be able to figure out their relevant points and... um figure out where the gaps are yeah and I think that's important and I think that it does lend an um so I want to be careful with what I'm about to say because I do get very frustrated online when people are like I have a PhD in finance therefore I can speak authoritatively on this like science matter And I'm like, uh, absolutely not. So I think, like, a PhD in in general, like, 
just the letters PhD behind your name don't give you like carte blanche authority to talk about, you know, whatever and and be right. But it does, you know, it, it does give you an ability to be able to speak with authority into certain subjects that are like within your realm of, right. of expertise, you know? Yeah, like I would never pretend to even, you know, be able to speak totally authoritatively on like an immunology question. Right. Because I'm not an immunologist. Like I know some immunology because of my training. Um, like I've run into it and had to kind of understand it in other contexts. But like that's if someone was to ask me a really detailed question about immunology, I would not pretend to know the answer. What I could basically say to that is I know how to look that up. Give me a couple hours and be able to come up with something coherent. And you have the ability to understand, you know, scientifically dense papers about it. So that even if you can't, you know, exactly understand, like, what this UMAP plot is saying to you, um, because I can't, and at this point I'm afraid to ask. Um, <laughs> it's it's like a single cell, large data set presentation where they compress information into two dimensions. I don't know. People have tried to explain it to me, and I nod and smile, but I have no idea what's going on. But I can read... <laughs> what people say about that data and I can understand if it's a congruent argument or not. You yes. know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really important. Yeah. But I like what you said that like having a PhD does mean that when it comes to things that are within like my realm of training and study that what I have to say is actually authoritative. And I don't want to sound, you know, self-aggrandizing or, like, stuffy, like a stuffy academic who thinks too highly of herself because I'm getting a PhD. Um, <laughs> Laura knows Randy is very, like, uh, anti- academic on twitter mostly about like theologians um who do this a similar sort of thing where they kind of go outside of their realm of knowledge to try to talk about stuff but he kind of makes fun of academics on twitter um so i like don't want to be that person right who who like over accentuates their authority because of their training but like at the same time like our training is worth something yes my training has to be worth something and lord knows i worked hard enough for it it better be worth something in the end yeah no kidding but also i think it's not you know prideful or vain to admit that because i have devoted years of my life to studying this topic and this discipline like I have a knowledge base that is deeper than the average bear um and I know I know things and I am qualified to answer questions and to give commentary on things that are within the realm of immunology to a lesser extent um biomedical sciences in general um 
and I, you know, admit when I don't know the answer and I have to go do some research. Um, and I try to stay in my lane for sure. Like, I know nothing about canon law. I would never weigh in on a debate in canon law. Like, <laughs> well, I have a PhD, therefore. Um, but I do think this idea that expertise is fake <laughs> is frankly insulting, um, but also really dangerous. Like, the average person on the street who hasn't taken a science class since undergrad does not know as much as I do and is not as qualified to speak into pressing biomedical or bioethical questions as I am. And that's important to know. Um, but then also, like, there are people who are more qualified than I am, and I listen to them. That's why I have mentors and a committee and... <laughs> You present science to other people who have been doing it longer than you have. Yeah, and I think there was something important that you said there about, like, admitting when you don't know something and um, trying to stay in your lane. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, like, intellectual humility is the phrase that I've been kind of thinking about it for myself. And actually, being in a PhD program teaches you that really well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because you're around, everyone that I'm around knows more about, you know, what I'm doing than I do. And they know how to tell when you're BSing them. So, it's, uh, you you get used to real quick being able to say, like, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. Let's yeah. find out. Or saying like, oh, you know, I didn't think about it that way. You know, so we, we get we get trained in knowing when to admit what we don't know. Right. Which and I think is needed. Well, which I think is needed for what we say, especially if we are in some kind of authoritative capacity. And by that, I really mean like. When I'm talking about authority, I'm really talking about like what I'm going to say to this person or advise or counsel to this person or group or governing body or what have you is going to actually have an impact on the decision that's made. That's like me having some kind of authority in a situation. Um, And I think being able to demonstrate intellectual honesty and like live that out well is an important part of actually using our PhD in the capacity that it's supposed to be used in um, when we graduate. Right. And I think there's there's a real freedom in being taught that it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, because that's not something I was, like, allowed to be able to say in my previous educational experiences. Like, it was, a, it was really bad if I didn't know anything. Like, if I didn't know the answer to something, right? Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then you go to grad school where the exams are just, they throw you in a room with four people for an hour and they ask you whatever off-the-wall question they can possibly come up with. And then it's suddenly okay to be like, you know, I don't know. From what I, I know, you know, A and B, and from that I would postulate C, but I don't know C for sure. Um, but also that's how all great research collaboration goes you know is is being able to admit you don't know something and going and finding somebody who knows it 
Yeah. And I feel like the hope with having a PhD and having like, you know, a higher degree of my own like intellectual capacity in a certain area, like the idea I think really is hopefully like collaboration in the end that like we all bring our individual expertise together um, to solve a really complex problem. Exactly. But yeah, no, it's it's really freeing to be able to say, I don't know, and for that to be encouraged. And I really appreciate that about the training we're receiving, because that's not something I felt comfortable saying before. And I think it's something that more people without PhDs should get comfortable saying. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. <laughs> I also liked what you brought up about this sort of anti-academics, anti-expert kind of rhetoric that's going on right now, which is frankly really hard to hear as someone who's literally, again, devoting five to six years of my life to pursuing like the most advanced degree that exists, you know, because I, because I want to use my you know, training and skill sets to solve, like, really difficult problems. And you need to be able to, like, you need to have training to answer hard problems. Like, you need to be formed in what, what am I, what am I trying to say? Like, just everyone needs formation. Right. And, and... I think this is sort of a larger trend in the culture. Like, I got really frustrated with it with some of the pandemic stuff where people who had frankly no business giving medical advice were trying to give medical advice on the internet. Um, but also like this is the rise of, you know, cryptocurrency and, you know, individual stock trading. Like suddenly anybody can access things that they aren't potentially appropriately trained to use properly and that leads them to believe that they have the same ability as someone who has trained and studied and has a much deeper understanding of the context in which these things exist and I think that's really dangerous as a whole well but I think there's a balance to there because I also don't want to say like if you're not an expert in immunology, you're not allowed to say what you think about the vaccine or you're not allowed to like express concern or misgivings or have questions or be skeptical because like free speech is also a thing that exists in our country. Right. And, and I think it should be. So yeah, like, I agree. And I, I, I think you're right. And I think that you're more than welcome to be a part of the conversation. Um, and to think and to come and to ask questions and raise concerns because you're going to think of things that someone who has been doing this for a long time, frankly, won't because, you know, we we have so many things that we just take for granted and assume and someone who doesn't have the, not even like the training, but just like the, the cultural experience of like, this is how this works. Um you know, we'll have questions and we'll we'll ask things and interrogate things in a really good way 
But at the same time, you have to be willing to listen. And I think sometimes people aren't always willing to listen. Right. And I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if there's just an assumption that anyone who... Concupiscent. (laughs) Well, okay, yes. (laughs) But it's like saying Jesus is the answer. Like, yes. Yeah, but we're a Catholic podcast. We have to say at least one Catholic word. That's the rule. It's like, yes, ultimately, if we follow the rabbit hole down far enough, original sin and (laughs) the resurrection are the answer. But I I would like to not follow the rabbit hole quite all the way down. Fine. Uh, (laughs) I think, I don't know, is there some kind of assumption that within the training I receive, I'm somehow receiving a particular kind of bias that makes what I have to say irrelevant. Like, I don't understand what the idea is supposed to be in this kind of anti-expert, like, mistrusting scientist I think part of it is we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot because we're not always great at communicating with non-scientists. Again, to to use the spiciest example I can come up with, in the pandemic, um, you know, people would give briefings like Dr. Fauci or, you know, someone else that was working for the NIH would give briefings and would say things and they would make perfect sense to me. Um, but to someone who wasn't an immunologist, they would be misconstrued. You know, like, people were upset that the vaccine, um, some of the vaccine trials had a higher, like, protection rate than it did when we put it in the general public. But, you know, to an immunologist, that makes sense, because I'm used to reading these kinds of studies, And they happened when we had more people wearing masks. They were generally in young and healthy people who are going to have a stronger immune response than the general public. Um, They honestly had a large proportion of healthcare workers participating who were going to be like hyper aware and and hyper cautious. And so they were probably at a lower likelihood of being exposed. Like, and so it makes sense that there was sort of a drop when it hit the general public. But that really upset people who didn't have that context, you know? Right. And then it becomes like, oh, science was wrong. Right. We lied to and you. We... It's like, no, we didn't lie to you. Just. It's just the data is what the data, the data are what the data are. I got in trouble because I called the data the singular when it's clearly plural. Um, <laughs> but what is this? What is the singular of data? I don't know, but every time I say data is, data? I get a little like... Now I feel stupid. <laughs> I don't know. Every time I say data is, I get a, a, a little like wrap on the wrist and it's like data are. Data is plural. So I don't know what the singular of data is. Another thing I'm just too afraid to ask at this point. Um, but, you know, like data are data. We're not lying to you about that, but we're not always great at conveying the circumstances in which this data was collected 
work letter? What? Please stop trying to correct it. You're <laughs> with my mind. If the data was collected, that might mean that the data you see is slightly different. You know, right? Because like, whenever you introduce new variables, things change. The outcome's not guaranteed to be the same. Science um, is not magic. I don't know. I feel like I don't have a whole lot more to say about this, except that, like, I've found it very frustrating to feel like there is at least a portion of, like, the world around me. And even, like, you know, people within the church or, like, within my community who, who it feels like they're against me. Yeah. Because, like, I represent something that they distrust and that hurts. Um, but also kind of transitioning into the second half of the topic, I guess. Like, one thing I've also come to appreciate is that the training that we get is really good is, and very valuable. Um, but depending on what you want to do after your PhD, it might not be enough or might not be the right kind of training. And that is something that I unfortunately learned the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. I do sometimes think, because one of the reasons I chose my program is the first year you spend, um, you have to spend a certain number of hours in, in clinic shadowing a clinician and sort of working... Yeah, just following them around and learning what they do and learning what the clinical side of research looks like. And, you know, yes, you're going to be in a lab doing these things, but here are concrete children whose names and faces you now know who your research potentially could impact. And um, turns out I like that more than I like bench science. And I don't want to be an MD. For sure not. But I think possibly I maybe should have gone and gotten a degree in social work and been a patient advocate instead. Um, but we're here now. <laughs> it's too late. Too late we're for that. We're in too deep. As much fun as it would be to go home at Christmas and be like, Mom and Dad, I'm dropping out so I can go be a social worker. Um, as much fun as that would be around the Christmas dinner table. Um, I now have to find ways to do what I'm really passionate about, but to do it with my PhD and my expertise, which I do not regret at all. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And something I'm thinking about, I'm trying to remember where I heard it from, but it's like, there's a lot of different ways to tap into what you care about. And so when you're thinking about like, your next career stage instead of thinking about like what you want to do think about what you care about yeah and what what are your you know skills and what are your motivators and like how can you combine those in a way that makes your job more fulfilling um cuz yeah like i could also probably do a lot of different things that are both science related and not science related and still get 
the same kind of satisfaction out of my job. It's just like, this is the path that I'm in now. Um, and so like, how do I use my training with what I'm passionate about and motivated by to do, you know, something that matters to me. Um, but something that's a little bit, something I had to kind of, again, learn the hard way. And I guess if I was going to talk to someone who was considering graduate school or early on to like start thinking about this sooner is that unfortunately, when it comes to your specific skills, a PhD teaches you how to do a postdoc. Which then teaches you how to run a lab, a lab. as a primary investigator. In an academic institution. Yep. <laughs> like, that is, there is a particular trajectory and a particular, like, pipeline that you are funneled into in most academic PhD programs. And if that's not the funnel you want to be in, if that's not the pipeline you want to be in at the end, like, you're going to have to do some work on your own to supplement for the skills that you're not getting. Correct. In your PhD. Because, um, like, a PhD isn't going to teach you how to write for non-scientists. It's no. not going to teach you how to write like a journalist. It's not going to teach you how industry science works or how um i'm trying to think about like how nonprofits use science like it's not going right, to absolutely. teach you about it's not going to teach you inherently about any of these tangential areas where you can use a phd in a different context um but you have to do a lot of that work on your own, which is part of, as I was talking about in the beginning of this episode, like why I am now doing some freelance writing um, for Femme Catholic. So the reason that I'm that I said yes to that, the reason why I applied to be a freelance writer for them, and that's something I'm starting to do, is because if I want to go into science communication, like I need to start practicing like writing for people who aren't scientists and building a writing portfolio um, so that I can move, I can transition into any kind of career where I have to write something for someone not inside my like realm of expertise. And it's also fair to say that you have interests outside of science. Like you're allowed to be more than a scientist. Yes, that's true. I guess just for this particular topic, like, one of my main motivations for applying for this opportunity and saying yes to it was because I knew the direction I wanted my career to go in. And I knew that, like, the training that I was getting, or that I am getting still as a PhD student is inadequate to be able to pivot in a new direction. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I do feel it's important to say you're allowed to be more than science. Yes. I affirm you in that. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm also a musician. <laughs> I'm a blogger occasionally. And Gunther does interior design. Bruiser <laughs> <laughs> knits killer sews, does little puppet shows. And someone collects Vladimir. ceramic <laughs> unicorns. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. That's all I can think. Oh, boy. <laughs> anyway. Where yes. were we? Um, we were talking about scientific training and thinking about, like, what our training does and doesn't give us. Right. Because there is a part of me that thinks if I had known what I know now when I was 21 and starting to apply for grad schools, like, would I have still gone? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but because, we're here like, now. Well, we're here now. But there is a part of me that's like, I want to save anyone who is like me. I'll rephrase. Like, I want anyone who's considering a PhD to think about, you know, what it is they really want out of their life. Like, what are your interests? What excites you? What motivates you? And will a PhD help you, like, towards that goal? I do think yeah. it's fair to not necessarily know the answer to all of those questions when you get into your PhD. Like, I think it's fair to say, I really like research. Um, I want or to Or at least learn. you think you like research. You think you like research. <laughs> Nobody likes research when you get out of your PhD. But you think you like research going in. Um, you know, you want to learn more about thinking critically, but you're not really sure, like, what your passion is. Part of grad school is figuring that out and exposing yourself to as many things as possible so that you can figure it out. Right. right? And, and seeking and you out. And you can even decide to leave. You can. You can totally leave grad school. I threaten to do it all the time, but sometimes people actually do. Um, and that's good. And if you discern that is right, go get them, tiger. But also, if you discern you want to be a primary inv- investigator, go get them too. You know, like, it mm-hmm. takes all kinds. And, and it is good. And I think it's beautiful that, like, PhD training can produce so many different opportunities. Like, I did my undergrad in chemical engineering. That produced exclusively chemical engineers. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the most part, some people have... <laughs> one, one, Honestly, one of my classmates is running a cookie bakery online and... I see her and I'm jealous every day. But for the most part, the people who are using their degrees are all chemical engineers. Whereas, you know, there are 12 other members of my cohort and we're probably going to end up doing 13 different things, even though we all entered the same program to be trained as PhDs because it's really flexible and you can, to a certain extent, mold it to what you want and what you need. Yes, I think just encouraging asking those questions earlier. Yes, do not wait until your third year like I did. Bad call. Bad call. Don't wait because <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna need that clarity and like motivation when you get into the hard parts of your PhD. Yeah, and I when we talked about this last time, but like I didn't have that for a long time, and the only reason I stayed in my PhD was because I was like. Well, Jesus, I really don't know what else you want me to do. I have no better ideas. So here I am. Yes, this sucks and I hate it. But here we are. And this is what we're going to do. I guess I will also say, though, as a caveat to myself, that like being in a PhD has been the most 
one of my more transformative, like, personal experiences in terms of, like, really forcing me to sit down and ask myself questions about, like, okay, what do I care about? Like, what do I really want out of my life? Like, what am I really passionate about? And learning how to actually dream about those things again um, and take some take some ownership over the trajectory of my life. Yeah, no, it's been great for me just, like, personal growth-wise. Um, I'm a lot less sensitive than I was coming in. Like, don't get me wrong. Things still hurt my feelings. You heard all about it last week. But I have, I have been able to contextualize things, like, so much better. And I think some of that is, like, what I talked about earlier. Like, the freedom of being able to say, like, I don't know. Like, I don't have to know everything and that's okay. Like, that has been really helpful and just, like, learning how to understand criticism not as, like, something that's talking about like my base like character and who I am um but of you know something I've done and being able to separate that out has been really helpful for me um because yeah I'm, I'm a little, little scrupulous scrupulous a little bit um and I struggle with perfectionism and so like it's been really freeing for me in the PhD to sort of learn how to put a lot of that down and to let go and just, like, be myself for better or worse. Like, this is the best I can do today. And I'm going to keep moving towards my goals. Even if it's not as perfect as I want it to be. Or I don't get as far as I feel like I should today. Like, I'm still moving forward. And I'm still working. Um, and I'm still around really cool, awesome people. Yeah. Nothing says lower your expectations quite like your PI walking into your office and saying, like, we should have... Uh, one-on-one catch-up meeting tomorrow. How's two o'clock? And you say, great! And then you frantically make slides for a couple of hours. <laughs> and there's, like, you know, axes missing on some of your, your, you know, your plots and things aren't organized the way you want them to be. But it's just, eventually you just have to be like, well, this is just the way it is. I am out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Just being okay with the way that things are and being honest about that is really good. But yeah, no, love a one-on-one with less than 24 hours notice. That's my fave. Um, But yeah, no, I think... I, I think the PhD for me was really formative. Is still really formative. I am not done. Um, but I have grown... Like, I've noticed I've grown a lot, like, personally. Um... And just, like, kind of almost, I guess, matured in a way that I don't know if I would have had the opportunity to, like, otherwise. Yeah. Not that I was immature coming in, but I was 22, you know, like. Yeah, and this was a, uh, you might be upset with me for bringing up this podcast on here, but they actually talked about this a little bit on The Crunch a few weeks ago. <laughs> the podcast that shall not be named. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast that shall not be named, except I just named it, so it's too late. But they were talking about, like, that's just kind of what it's like being in your 20s in yeah. general. It's just, like, life is a lot of transition. 
and there's still a lot of growth and change that's happening because we're still settling into our careers and we're still like getting married and like starting families and you know things there's a there's a lot of change that happens uh in this season. And so I feel like the PhD provided a really good, like guided and well-supported place for me to let some of these transitions happen. Yeah. um, And do some maturing and understanding more of like who I am and what I want out of my life. Um, Yeah, with, like, a bigger safety net, I guess. Right, and I think sometimes it's a little more expected that you're still doing that when you're in your PhD as opposed to, like, being in the workforce. I say never having been in the workforce outside of retail. Um, (laughs) You know, like, it's a space where they expect you to really push and, and to be uncomfortable and to be learning how to deal with that discomfort. And so I think there's a lot of grace that's just sort of naturally afforded you as you go through that process in PhD, which I appreciate. Um, And it's also just you're surrounded by people who part of their job is dealing with 22-year-olds who have no idea what they're doing. No idea. We think we know, but we really don't. I still don't know. (laughs) I am almost 26 and I have no idea. (laughs) I mean, I can tell you, as someone who's been 26 for a whole six months, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't go away. You just gradually learn over time that no one really knows what we're doing and we're all just trying our best. Like, as you get older, the pretenses start to slowly fall off. You feel you more kind of... safe admitting, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I know. <laughs> how, do my, how do my taxes work? I don't really know. I just do my best. Yeah, I feel like we're probably pretty done. <laughs> I think so. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. You can follow us. Um, subscribe to our podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. Please rate and review us if that is available on your particular service. Um, and follow us on Instagram at Feminine Genus Podcast or on Twitter at Feminine Genus. Um, and yeah, like, subscribe, comment, do all that good stuff. Um, and more importantly than any of that, please share the podcast with your friends. Um I know that there's 40 of you listening to this that come every week. Because and you I 40 watched... will be my favorite forever. <laughs> yes, you were here from the beginning and we appreciate you very much. But the best way that people can learn about us um, and who we are and what we talk about is if you tell them. So please, if you know of anyone who you think would be interested in this podcast, who would like the topics that we discuss or is thinking about going to graduate school and might like a perspective from some people who've been in graduate school for a bit, um, please, you know, don't hesitate to send the show out. Um, We're really just interested in getting the show to people who would be interested in listening to it 
So we could use your help, guys. Would be very appreciated. And with that, we'll see you next time. And remember, JP2 called you a genius. Bye. Bye, guys.